All right, if you would take your Bibles with me and open up to the very last chapter of the book of Amos. If you have the exact same Bible I do, it's page 934. You probably don't, so sorry. Amos chapter 9. Let me begin by reading just the first four verses. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals so that the thresholds will quake, and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will kill the rest of them with the sword. Not one of them who can flee will flee. And not one of them who can survive will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. Though they ascend to heaven, from there will I bring them down. Though they hide on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. Though they conceal themselves from my eyes on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent. And it will bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it will kill them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. This is certainly a fitting ending to the book of Amos. It has been a book filled with warnings of coming judgment. Each chapter there was some kind of warning. There's a prosecution of the kinds of sins they were involved in, rich, lavish lifestyles, oppression of the poor, um, hypocrisy in God's house, and he sent Amos, the shepherd prophet, to warn them. Last week, you remember, we had a fourth vision. There's a total of five visions in this book. We're going to have the last one today. Last week, we looked at the fourth one. And it was a vision of a basket of summer fruit, which was meant to communicate that the fruit was ripe and thus was only good to be eaten quickly. The idea there meaning that after all the warnings, now they were ripe for judgment. And just as the summer fruit needed to be eaten, so also they needed to be destroyed. This is the point. We cannot forget, though, that they've been warned over and over and over again. In fact, the very center of the book, Amos chapter 5, you can turn there, Amos 5, 4, is really the the primary message and reason for the warnings. Amos chapter 5, verse 4, there's going to be three of these similar statements. Amos says, For thus says Yahweh to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not come to Gilgal, nor cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into exile. Bethel will become evil. No longer go to your places of worship with your hypocritical worship. That's not the place where safety is found. You just need to seek me. Then again in Amos 5, 6, Seek Yahweh that you may live. 
lest he come mightily like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. For those who overturn justice into wormwood and put righteousness down to the earth. Then one last time in verse 14 of chapter 5, we have this last appeal. Seek good and not evil in order that you may live. And thus may Yahweh, God of hosts, be with you. Just as you have said, hate evil, love good, and set justice at the gate. Perhaps Yahweh, God of hosts, may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. This is the central message. The stern warnings which may seem harsh, and particularly seem harsh to those who are caught in sin, are actually warnings filled with love. And so it was in Amos' day that God found a man who was willing to stand and speak the truth in a day filled with hate. Undiluted truth. God has always had His men, His choice servants, who would be willing to speak what is true. For example, turn over to Luke chapter 3. I want you to see and consider with me John the Baptist. He was the man right before Christ's coming. Luke chapter 3, we'll start in verse 7. This was a man who certainly was not politically correct at all. Described him as a voice crying out in the wilderness. Luke chapter 7, or sorry, Luke chapter 3, verse 7. So he was saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. By the way, he's speaking to a very similar audience as Amos did in his day, he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day. They did not think that they needed to repent. And God is basically telling them, you are not special. God could raise up these rocks to worship Him. It was not an excuse that they were to hold on to. But indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's no respecter of persons. Just a few verses later, he confronts the governor, Luke 3.18. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the gospel to the people. Uh, so this was his constant message. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him, reproved just means he sought to expose him, convince him over and over, telling him of his wrongs. But when Herod was reproved by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done. So here's the situation. John is actually growing in popularity. In fact, verse 15, it says, Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were reasoning in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. I mean, that is like you've made it as a preacher. If people are having discussions around their small groups, Hey, is that guy the Messiah? I mean, you're probably a pretty good preacher. You're probably speaking with an incredible amount of authority. 
So this is what's happening. But the popularity hasn't softened him a bit. Because even though confronting Herod surely would have been like a nail in the coffin of his ministry, he does it anyway. He says, confronting him over his brother's wife, that this is wrong. And then he also says all the wicked things which Herod had done. So in other words, he's not just picking some sins. He's probably nitpicking and listing all the sins. This would have enraged him. But he was God's man at that time. Consider someone from church history, John Knox, the greatest Scottish reformer of the 1500s. He confronted the queen several times, Mary, Queen of Scots, in her own palace. Maybe not a wise thing, according to many of his day, but he did it anyway. And he was known throughout his ministry of being unashamed and uncompromising with the truth. He said this, I have learned plainly and boldly to call wickedness by its terms, by its name. I call a fig a fig and a spade a spade. In other words, no matter what the culture may say, no matter what the queen may say, I'm going with what God says. Just going to call sin, sin. So they will call it by another name. They will redefine it and demand that everybody else do the same, but we cannot join in such lies. All this being the case, here's what you need to be really clear on. Relationship with God's people and with God never is won by compromising the truth for the sake of the relationship. It is won by standing with the truth until the Lord opens up their eyes that they may stand with Him too. All of these warnings, full of love. Amos was full of love. John the Baptist, full of love. This is why they spoke. But as is always the case, those who have hearts who have either been deceived or darkened or deadened or all of the above by sin did not receive the warnings as love. And this was the case. Look over back again at Amos chapter 7. Amos 7.10 Amos, at risk of his own life, has been warning his people that judgment is coming. Here's the response. Amaziah, the priest, wants to talk to Amos, and maybe he had some hope in his heart that he would come around. Sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. So first, this priest is going to talk behind Amos's back. And this is what he says. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile, which is not exactly what he said. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, fly away to the land of Judah. There eat bread, and there do your prophesying. Hey, if you would just stop, I'm going to give you a good option. Don't say anything here. Go over there. You can say it there. That's fine. You will have a life of comfort. But no longer, he said, prophesy at Bethel. Why? It's the sanctuary of the king. This is his land. What right do you have? And a royal house. Warning is given in love. Rejected, filled with hate. 
Herod's response to John, Luke 3.20, Herod also added this to all of them. He locked John up in prison. That statement comes right after the statement where John the Baptist had called out all the wicked things that John had done, and then Luke says this is what Herod added to that. He locked up God's servant. Later, of course, we know that he chopped off his head. John Knox was for a time in prison and exiled. God's prophets warn in love, even though they know that those hardened by sin will reject those warnings and call it hate and bring on persecution. And in doing this, they allow those who hate the very word of God, which is meant to soften, meant to warn, meant to bring them to a place of relationship with God. They allow it instead to harden their hearts and prepare them for greater punishment. And thus, when those who are given over to their sin demand affirmation of the very lifestyles that are leading them to be fattened up for the day of slaughter, we must in love refuse. Not only because such affirmations are full of hate, but also to affirm them in any way is to join them, become complicit with them. Romans chapter 1, Paul makes this clear, verse 32, And although they knew the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. We cannot stand. By the way, Nikki and I were just listening to a podcast on the way here, talking about someone who is a member of the Finnish parliament, who is being tried a major, like the biggest fine you could get, time in prison. Why? Because she tweeted Romans chapter 1 and asked the question of how Romans chapter 1 fits in with what's going on in the church. Hate speech, so to speak. We cannot approve because to do so makes us complicit. The pressure would have been great in Amos' day. It's easy to read it and not realize that. Pressure is getting greater in our day. So as we come to chapter 9, then, we're introduced to a vision. And in this vision are two crucial promises. That every person who is going to stand for truth must hold to. Two promises that we must believe in order to speak out in an evil generation. We must believe and hold these dear. It's a negative promise and a positive promise. Verses 1 through 10 is the first. This is a promise of retribution. Promise of future judgment. This is what I read to you in verses 1 through 4. Uh, You've already got the sense of it. But this is the start of the vision. So all of a sudden, here's Amos, and he gets this vision, and it's of the Lord standing by the altar. And what you may have noticed when I read this before is that this is describing, essentially, the nature of this retribution, the characteristics, what are the key elements of it. And really, actually, it's just one key element that I think Amos is trying to get us to see and uh, by the way, I've got this sub point on there too, so you can put that up. Unlike me, I know, but there you go. The nature of it is that it's inescapable. It's inescapable. 
it's inevitable, it's unavoidable. Now, this is what he's trying to say. Not a one of them who can flee, verse 1, will flee. There's a sense where they may think that they can flee, but they can't. Not one of them who could potentially survive will be able to escape. And then he goes on to say they could dig all the way down to Sheol. God will find them. They could go as high as they can to the heavens. God will find them. They can be carried off by their enemies. God will find them. Go to the bottom of the sea. God will find them. When God promises judgment, when that judgment comes, there will be no escape. I imagine the rhetorical question of Hebrews chapter 2 will haunt many on that day. Hebrews 2, 3, for how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Or 2 Corinthians 6, 2, behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. For those who one day face God's judgment, many of them will know that there was a day given to them to turn to Christ, and they refused. Today is the day of salvation, right now. If you have not given your life to Christ, this is the day. If you have friends who have not given their life to Christ, this is the day. But for those who reject it, tomorrow may be a day of wrath. There is no promise. And when that tomorrow day of wrath comes, there will be no escape. Amos already warned of this, actually, Amos 5.9, right after his call for Israel to seek the Lord that they might live, he says, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or he goes home and leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. In other words, he keeps thinking that he's escaped and it eventually gets him. There is no escape. So the inescapability of God's judgment is the main characteristic being emphasized here. So, in a day and age where speaking, texting, writing, Romans 1, could land you in prison, would at least maybe label you as a bigot and a hateful person, what message should you tell them? God's judgment is inescapable. It's unavoidable. And by the way, that actually is the only message that logically makes sense as to why you would continue to speak it, even though they don't like it. I have to tell you, it is inescapable. This is the first part of the vision. He continues. And as he continues, he's going to answer a question that will come to the mind of everyone on that day whom judgment falls. That is the author of this retribution. Who is the author of this retribution in verses 5 through 6? It's quite obvious now, Lord Yahweh of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts, and all those who inhabit it mourn. And all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt, the one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth, the one who calls for waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. Unmistakably, who is it? Yahweh is His name. Covenant name of God. Which Israel at that time would have been looking at God 
Yahweh as someone who would bless them. The tables have been turned, and Yahweh is going to bring destruction. Or as it says in verse 4, My eyes are set against them for evil and not for good. God is the author of this retribution. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and He said, Strike the capitals. God is the actor. He's the one that has the ability to cause this earthquake. That's what it said in verse 1. The thresholds will quake. That's essentially what he's saying in verse 5. The one who touches the land so that it melts, or literally in Hebrew, convulses. Everything turned on its head. Not only does he have power, but also these verses make it clear that he has all authority. He's the one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens. Okay, No one else is able to do this as God does. He dwells in the heavens. He created the heavens. He's over the heavens. And has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He sits over it. The one who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. Yahweh is his name. He's the one who makes it rain. He's the one that is the creator, who sits over it all, who sees all. He's the one that a long time ago in their day caused the great floods to come upon the earth and judge. God is the author. So many authors write what they cannot carry out. They have great imaginations, and the the skills of some of these people are amazing. But what God writes... He has the ability and the authority and the power to carry it out. And He will carry it out, just as He has promised. He is the author. Then last, we have the recipients of this retribution. The nature, the author, the recipients, verses 7 through 10. He has some questions. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares Yahweh? Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Aramaeans from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord Yahweh are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares Yahweh. For behold... I am commanding and will shake the house of Israel among the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword, those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. What's he getting at here? I think the main idea here is that God is no respecter of persons. This is what he means when he says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord Yahweh are on the sinful kingdom. It doesn't matter which kingdom you're a part of, whether you are kingdom of Israel, or God's people literally, or you're in America, or wherever it may be, you're a surrounding nation of Israel, labeled an enemy of God. It doesn't matter. God's righteous wrath will pour out against sinful kingdoms. This is what enables it. He's no respecter of persons, and he's trying to get them to see that. He says, are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me? In other words, you're really no different to me, O sons of Israel. Have I not 
brought up Israel from the land of Egypt, but also, so this is true, you may have thought you were special, and the Philistines from Taftor, Aramaeans from Kerr. In other words, you've had your day of deliverance, but also I have delivered other nations. I'm a God over all nations. You have thought yourself special. You shouldn't have. He's basically trying to say, regardless of where you were born, what nation you belong to, who your parents were, the recipients of judgment will be those who continue in sin. And note what they say, verse 10. Those who say the calamity, the destruction, the judgment will not overtake or confront us. That is what every person who continues in their sin says. That is what they believe. It will not happen to us. This, by the way, is what you are working against any time you have a gospel conversation with someone, anytime you confront their sin, in their hearts they are thinking, this will not happen to me. Many reasons for thinking that. I'm a good person. They're depending on something that they think makes them righteous or covers them that does not. They don't believe in God. They're suppressing the truth, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, it comes down to this will not happen to me. And you know why it has to come down to this? Because if they believe this, they will repent in a heartbeat. If they truly knew God's awesome power and the terror of His future judgment, it would not be a question. They would repent in a heartbeat. This, more than anything, shows their obvious blindness. A state of denial. Why? Why? Because they have pride. They think they are better than other nations. Whatever it may be. I'm a, I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. We've been given God's law. Therefore, God must love us and accept us. One commentator writes, God explains to the Israelites how they are not so different from the other nations who do not share in the Mosaic covenant with Israel. The same God who brought Israel up out of Egypt, is also orchestrating the movements of all other nations. Yahweh is at work in the nations all around them. He is the supreme God over all nations, not just Israel. And because He orchestrates all nations, He can also use those very nations against them. This is the message. All this being the case, one of the most constant messages throughout the book of Amos is simply that it is the height of folly to think that you can escape God's judgment just because you have some close affiliation with God's people. That you can escape God's judgment just because you have heard the word of God. Jesus said over and over and over again, have you not heard? Do you not hear? You've heard that it is said, but I say to you. The question is not just have you heard, but have you listened? Has it penetrated your heart? So whether you sit in prison or the pews, justice will come if your heart still remains full of sin. And this is what Amos believed. This is what he knew. And if you want to be a more bold proclaimer of the gospel, this too must be what you believe.
100%. This vision needs to be clear in your mind. And by the way, did God's judgment come to these people? Yes. 721 BC, the Assyrians came, was awful destruction, carried them out of the land. This prophecy came true. But of course, the principle of coming judgment applies to every sinner who refuses to repent. God will judge those who refuse. And yet, even in this section, full of destruction, full of judgment, seems to be no hope. There is one verse of hope. Look at the second half of verse 8. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares Yahweh. Now, I might have held on to that. What does that mean? And Amos is going to expound upon that. And with that, we have a second promise, a promise of restoration. This is a promise of hope. Three subpoints. Again, this time it will be reversed. The recipients of this restoration. Verses 9, or chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. In that day, Amos says, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. And I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the ancient days. Jerusalem will be rebuilt, the nation will be rebuilt, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares Yahweh, who does this. These verses speak of a future remnant in Israel, a future restoration of the nation of Israel, the people of God. He says, again, they will possess the land. And this will be a rebuilding time period. The cities that have been destroyed will be rebuilt. They will be strong again. Now, for many years, this seemed an utter impossibility. In fact, I was listening on the way after dropping off the girls from school. I wanted to see what Spurgeon said. He had happened to preach on this verse. You know, Spurgeon's so good, he just needs one verse. So he picked verse 13. And this is what he says. My dear friends, while this promise will doubtless be carried out, and every word of it shall be verified, so that the hilltops of that country shall again bear the vine, and the land shall flow with wine, yet I take it this is more fully a spiritual than a temporal promise. Spurgeon was not perfect. But you have to understand that during his day, Israel was nowhere near to occupying the land again, to being a nation again. No one expected it, and then in 1948, they did. After almost 2,000 years of being out of the land. Does this fulfill the promise? No. But it certainly shows you that God has not left His people. And it may be the first fruits of the promise. The millennial kingdom has not yet begun. The Lord has not yet returned. Israel has been partly restored to the land, but the nation of Israel is still rejecting the Messiah. They remain in unbelief. But there will come a day when Israel will again seek the Lord. They will live out the promises of the book of Revelation 
be a great tribulation. 144,000 of them will get saved, and they will be a force to be reckoned with, a remnant of believing Jews. And that group, along with many other Gentiles, will walk right into a promised millennial kingdom where Christ will reign for a thousand years, Revelation 26 says, and then God will usher in the eternal state. This is what Amos is talking about. He's speaking of an ultimate and final restoration of Israel. And with it will be all kinds of blessings. Almost every single one of the prophets speak of this restoration. It is a promise that is not only Israel's, it is particularly Israel's, but also for all who have been grafted in through belief in Jesus Christ. So who's going to make this possible? Netanyahu? No. <laughs> who's the author of this? Look at verse 11. Again with me. In that day, I, that's Yahweh, will raise up the fallen. I will raise up its ruins. Verse 14, I will restore the captivity of my people. Verse 15, I will also plant them in their land, says Yahweh your God. That's good news. Because if God does it and says it, it will happen. And guess what? It will be the best restoration possible. And I want to show you to end the nature of this restoration. Look at verse 13. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. What is he saying there? The land is going to be so fertile, so plentiful, so producing, that you're going to throw seed out. It's going to grow so quickly that the other guy behind them is going to be trying to come and, and they're bumping into each other. I mean, the same with the grapes. They're going to be trying uh, to go through and tread the grapes while the other one sows seed. This is the most fertile land possible. When the mountains will drip sweet wine and all of the hills will melt. This is the earth as it should be. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the desolate cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards, drink their wine, make gardens, eat their fruit, and also plant them in their land. In this a particular comfort, they will not again be uprooted from their land which I have given them. The history of Israel is over and over again. They're there, they're uprooted. They're there and uprooted. They're there and uprooted. Who knows whether that may happen again. But in this promise, they will be planted and never again be uprooted. Says Yahweh, your God. The new heavens and the new earth are very physical. This is not a spiritual heavenly state where we float around on clouds. This is an eternal resurrected body on a perfect new heavens and new earth, living amongst one another with perfect glorified bodies and hearts, with 
Christ reigning as our head forever. We will follow every command. The land will follow every command. This is perfection all around. And this is the other promise that everyone who proclaims God's message must continue to hold dear if they're going to stand firm. Why would you ever leave this? Two tensions here. There is the promise of retribution that is coming for all who depart from God's word. And there is the promise of hope that is coming for all who stand strong. There's a whole host of people who have no idea. They have no idea. And they're blind to it. And they think that their sin is all there is. So who tells them? Only those who 100% believe that judgment is coming and eternal blessings are coming. But the only person who avoids the judgment and enters into the blessing is the one who is trusted in God's Son. Because judgment will rightly fall upon everyone who has not trusted in Him. There's nothing you can do There's nothing they can do. Christ came. He took the punishment. He took the judgment. He calls upon everyone today to follow Him, to trust in Him, to be a fisher of men. And when you follow Him, you follow Him all the way to His kingdom, which He will rule over forever. What's the key to standing firm? It's a relationship with Christ that you would never give up for any relationship here on earth. Pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, that all of this has been fixed, determined by your sovereign plan. If there be anyone here in this room who does not know you, Lord, open their eyes as we cannot. Humble them. Show them their sin, but most importantly, show them Christ and how precious He is that He would come down and take the punishment that is owed us. Lord, all of these things are easy to say. They're somewhat easy to picture. It's hard to be affected by them. It's hard to truly, 100%, Not only accept it, but live as if we 100% believe it. Lord, help us. Fill our minds with these things. Lord, keep us from the worldly distractions that are all around us, that would cause us, tempt us to forget that there is a promise of future judgment and also a promise of future blessing. And Father, whatever pains we can experience on earth, it is nothing compared to judgment. Whatever pleasures we can experience on earth, it is nothing compared to blessing. And so, Father, we look forward to that day. And until that day, help us to stand firm as your choice servants who are willing to speak for you. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.